0: Good morning. morning. How you men doing? Hyper. Hyper, he says. Well, I can tell you I'm not hyper. I uh, was out late last night with some good Catholic men watching a movie called Act of Valor. Have you heard about this movie? This is a phenomenal, interesting movie. It's an independent film. To give us a glimmer into the insight of the Navy SEALs. Instead of using actors, they use actual Navy SEALs. Real active duty SEALs when they weren't uh, uh, stationed overseas, filmed this movie over the course of two years. This movie gives you an insight into the brotherhood of their fraternity. And I want to touch on that today. I come from a military background. My grandfather served in Korea. My mom's dad served in uh, World War II. My dad was career army officer. or career army enlisted uh, NCO. My uncle was wounded in Afghanistan. I've had two cousins serve in Iraq and Afghanistan. My sister was in the Air Force. I served in the Marine Corps. So I have an, I have an, an understanding of military communities. What sets the Navy SEALs apart, apart from their training, their tactics, their capabilities, their physical fitness, is their brotherhood. But you will often hear a Navy SEAL say, I know my brother so well that I know what he's thinking. And so we communicate visually. I don't have to ask him. I don't have to tell him where I want him to be. He'll be there because he knows that's where I want him to be. You see, when they go into combat, they need to know that everything is cool. They need to know that their brothers are there with them. That they would die for their brothers. But more importantly, for their brother's wife. For their brother's children. Their brotherhood is everything to them. Brothers in Christ, you are in a brotherhood. Brothers in Christ, you are in combat. No, you say, I'm a college student. I'm looking forward to the day when I get a big, cushy job with a big, cushy paycheck, the big mahogany desk, and the nice beamer. That's my life. By virtue of the graces you received in the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, you are not destined for a big, cushy job or a big, cushy desk or a big, cushy car of any kind. You are destined to become the king's men. You are evangelists. I said this last year. You're an evangelist who may one day become a lawyer. You're an evangelist who may one day become a doctor. You're an evangelist who may one day become an engineer or whatever else you feel called to. I hope you've discerned your vocation. I hope you've discerned your occupation because God has designs on both. But you are in a brotherhood and you live in a culture that is adverse to your faith, to your way of life. I'll tell you a story. Last year I was going to speak in Wyoming. I was giving a series of talks on salvation history. I got on the plane and I sat down next to this fine gentleman in the seat and I I took out my books and I took out my talks and I was just going to spend this time preparing for what I had to talk about. And he was curious. He's like seeing my Bible and my catechism there and he's like, "Uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm just going to a men's retreat, going to give some talks. You know, I wanted to be focused. Don't bother me. I'm not interested. I want to focus. I got to spend this time getting ready. But he kept nudging. The Holy Spirit's like, isn't this why I sent you? Do you think I sent you to give a talk? I sent you to talk to this man. This is your mission. This is the talk you need to give. Okay, Holy Spirit, okay. Put my stuff down. So I started talking to him. He's a non-Catholic Christian brother, non-denominational, evangelical. <coughs> what are you going to talk about? Okay. So I go into a, a sort of a summary of the talks. And I end up going into a... I started feeling the fire, so I went into like a 45-minute apologetic for the Catholic Church. And I hit him. I hit him every which way from Sunday. The sacraments, the Pope, Mary, the church. I hit him every which way. And at the end of 45 minutes, I gave the most really apologetic I had ever heard you know what he said that was entertaining oh man I'm a Catholic evangelist you don't tell me it's entertaining you tell me you're going to join RCIA tomorrow <laughs> I mean I get a set of steak knives with the next convert no that was entertaining oh my pride just took a blow you know what he said to me he says I don't believe in religion I believe in relationship. I said, bingo! That's exactly what the Catholic Church teaches. He went, what? Yes! We have a personal, intimate relationship with the king of kings, the Lord of all creation. It's not me and Jesus from down the block. It's me and Yahshua, the king of creation. Let me give you an analogy. Let's say for the sake of the argument, I am personal friends with the President of the United States. Me and the President, we are tight. This is the kind of powerful figure who if I got myself into some real bad trouble, he could redeem me. And I know this man so well, I have his personal cell phone number. I text him whenever I want. I call him whenever I want. I need some me and President time. Every single day I call him up and I just chat with my buddy. Does that therefore mean that I could show up to the White House whenever I felt like it? Could I just waltz into the Oval Office on a whim just because I needed some me and President time? Imagine if I just meandered up the, to the personal residence of the White House and interrupted a conversation between the President and say his mother. Excuse me ma'am, it's just me and the President. I don't need you ruining our relationship, thank you very much, detracting from this. There'd be no possibility of that ever happening. I don't care how good of friends I would be with the president. There is protocol. He may be my personal friend. He may may stick his neck out for me to save me from some trouble I've gotten myself into, but there is no possibility that I could break protocol of the office that he possesses. I would have to respect the fact that he is the president of the United States And, my friend, how much more for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, how we reduce our relationship to this idea of just being personal. Oh, it's just me and Jesus. As if Jesus is somehow contrary to the church he died to give you. As if somehow his church is detracting from his personal, intimate union with you. Brothers in Christ, in this lies the key to your brotherhood. You see, Jesus is not only your personal, intimate friend, but your friend happens to be the king of all creation, who spoke you into existence, who counts the hairs in your head, who watches your back when you're in trouble, who witnesses before his father in the heavenly sanctuary, as a lamb standing as if slain, Revelation chapter five, for you. He witnesses for you. So let me ask you today, brothers in Christ, who are you? Who are you? Who do you wanna be? What kind of man do you wanna be? If your Lord will witness for you, dying personally for you, what are you willing to do for him? What is your personal commitment to your friend who loves you so much like the navy seals who go into combat in a brotherhood you as i said are in combat in spiritual combat and these are your brothers i wonder does the brother next to you to your right and to your left in front of you and behind you do they know what you're thinking do they know you so well that they don't even need to communicate with words do they have your back Or do they leave you all alone on the battlefield to fall prey to lust and temptation? Never to say a word to you, but let you die in your sin. Sexual temptation is at the forefront. It is the tip of the spear that Satan uses to kill your soul. Let's go back in time. Genesis chapter 2. There, our Lord creates Adam from the dust of the earth, breathing his ruah, his spirit into his body, giving him life. And then what's he do? He gives him dominion over creation. He is now a king. Then what does he do? He puts him in a garden sanctuary to work out of love for God. He is now a priest. And he says, go and multiply and fill the face of the earth. Now he is a prophet taking the very image of God into the wilderness, cultivating society for God's glory and for the salvation of his people. He is priest, prophet, and king in the garden sanctuary. And then God says, it is not good that you have no equal. And so he puts man asleep and takes from his side the rib and fashions woman. Finally! Finally! an equal, finally, an equal, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is man's equal. Together, they are made in the image and likeness of God. And this image in Genesis 2 is the image of matrimony. On the seventh day, God forms his creation covenant between God, creation, and man. And it says in the very last verse of Genesis 2 that they are both naked and unashamed. Seven verses later, they are both naked and ashamed. What happened? What could have gone wrong? The last verse of Genesis chapter 2, naked and unshamed. The first verse of Genesis 3 1, the very next verse in sacred scripture, the most subtle, the most cunning of all the creatures, the serpent, enters in. What do you think Adam and Eve were doing when they were both naked and unashamed when the two become one? You think they were playing Yahtzee? Maybe a little Scrabble? You think Adam was hoeing the garden and she was maybe doing the dishes? What do you think the one flesh union means? The intimate act between man and woman. When man gives himself completely, totally and utterly to his spouse. That's what love is, brothers in Christ. It's total self-offering. Love is never selfish. Love never seeks for itself. Love is always completely and totally giving. And so when man gives himself totally to the wife, and the wife totally gives herself back to the husband, from the two comes love. And as theologians say, nine months later you give it a name. This is the shadow of the Trinity in heaven. Stamped into the very nature of human persons is the inner life of God himself. And then what does Satan do? He attacks man at that most vulnerable, most intimate moment. What has he been doing ever since? You wanna know how many strip clubs I passed driving up here? I went to the movie last night. Not one sexually explicit image in the entire movie. But you know how many sexually explicit images I saw in the previews? Thank you Jesus for not bringing my son to that movie he would have been scandalized by the previews alone. I can't go to a grocery store without having to fight for my soul because of the images on the rack. And I just sit there and I look at these these poor women portrayed on this cover like that's somehow glamorous. Like my lust for them makes them whole. And then I look at the lady behind the counter checking me out and I just wonder, how does that make you feel? Are you wondering if I'm looking at you like I'm looking at them? Because you're my commodity today. I will use you. I will abuse you. That's what that culture does. Let me tell you another story about your family history. One you're all going to be very familiar with. You see, sexual sin is the spear of the, Satan's battle against you. And it has come through all of salvation history. Under Noah. Under okay. Abraham. Under Moses. Even the 12 sons had it. I could... You want to see me after? I'll give you all the details. But let's look at Moses. Moses is called by God and through a burning bush to go and set his firstborn son free from the slavery of bondage in Egypt. Now Moses sees the bush and he gets curious and he goes to see it. And then Moses you know, is given this call and what does he do? He's a good man of God. He says, absolutely I'll go because my father has called me to it. No starts making one excuse after the other. Uh, well, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they, were, they were trying to kill me, Lord, and, uh, you know, and, and I stutter, and uh, I've got balding going on, little love handles, I'm not good looking, I'm not articulate, I, I, uh, I'm not smart. God has had enough of his excuses. Moses, I'm calling you, because I will use the lowest and the most foolish to confound the wisest. And the highest. Moses went from being a prince of Egypt. To a shepherd in Midian. The lowest of their society. With his stammering, stuttering tongue. Because he was too fearful to go back. Because he had been rejected by his own people. And sought his, his life from Pharaoh. So if he says, no, I'll send your brother Aaron. Aaron will be the prophet. You will be like God to Aaron. You will tell, tell Aaron what I want. And Aaron will tell Pharaoh. So he goes, finally. What's the first thing Moses says to Pharaoh? God said, let my first phone go because we're going to the promised land. We've got to go. We'll see you later. Goodbye. No. First time Moses speaks to Pharaoh, it's, let my people worship and come back. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to the promised land. What is this come back stuff? Brothers in Christ, You live in a culture that cannot stand your faith. What do you think the Israelites lived in? They lived in a culture that could not stand their faith. They were there 430 years and they had lost their way. Their hearts had turned from the one true God and turned towards the false idols of Egypt and they succumbed to the environment around them. Instead of converting that society, they were converted by it. Instead of being a light in a dark world, they became the darkness and their consciences were diminished. God does not care as much about your physical well-being, your material well-being, as much as He cares about your spiritual well-being. He cares more about your communion with Him than He does about how many dollars are gonna be in your pocket. So you're a slave. Being a son of the Most High God is the most important thing ever. Slavery doesn't matter. The same word is used for giving service to Pharaoh as giving worship to God. Same Hebrew word. Why? Because when we offer everything up for God, it becomes glorious. When we offer what we have materially to sin, it becomes slavery. Do you do all things for the glory of God? Do you give excellence in your studies for the glory of God? Do you pour yourself out in excellence in everything you do? Or do you just sort of make your way by? What kind of man do you want to be? God cares first about how you relate to him. Second only, your material well-being. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be given to you. Saint Teresa of Lisieux said, I get anything I want because I want whatever I get. When you align your will to God's will, you will find true happiness and peace and contentment. But when you drudge your way through this world, seeking your own way, you will find nothing but dissatisfaction, angst, anxiety, depression, and slavery. Moses finally has God pour out the the 10 plagues, right? What are the 10 plagues? The 10 plagues are 10 judgments upon 10 gods in Egypt. Now, Israel is God's firstborn son. What does that make Egypt? No son of God at all? No, Egypt is God's son too. You see, in that culture, the firstborn son had a preeminent role. It's called the the primogeniture. The firstborn son was the, the crux of their society. He was the priest of the family. He was the one that looked after the family. When his father died, he took over as patriarch. They were the leaders in their society. That was what God was calling Israel to be, calling them out, converting them, cleansing them, catechizing them, preparing them for the mission. Because as Israel is firstborn, Egypt is God's son too. And so, in the pouring out of the ten plagues, God is doing two things all at the same time. He's chastising his son Egypt while he's catechizing his son Israel. He loves them both. He desires both to come back. God desires all men to be saved. Every man, every woman, every child. And so, finally, the people go after the firstborn of Egypt dies, killing the divinity of Pharaoh because his son was divinized along with him. It was the only way the Pharaohs had to guarantee the successor of their sons on the, on the throne after they died. Because in Egypt, there were a lot of dynasties, a lot of killing people off, a lot of turmoil in, behind the, the royal scenes in Egypt. So you would have your firstborn son divinized and worshiped. This way, when you died, he'd get the throne and your name and your legacy would carry on. So when you kill his firstborn son, you've killed the god cult worship of Pharaoh. It was the last straw, but that's not all what he killed. He killed the firstborn of every household, every flock, every herd. What did God do? He left a power vacuum in Egypt like you can't even begin to believe. Imagine if tomorrow we woke up and every governor, the president of the United States, all the main leadership figures in our country were dead. Now we have redundant systems. There are cabinets who will take over and fill in until we elect. But can you imagine the power grab all over our country that would take place? The infighting, the selfishness that would occur. It would be utter chaos. That's what happened to Egypt. So they basically paid the Israelites off. Go, take all of our gold, get out, leave us alone. And then God leads them out, takes them all the way to the foot of Mount Sinai after the Passover. He has the 12 firstborn sons of the 12 tribes consecrated to God as priests, the firstborn priesthood, which goes back to Adam, through Noah, to Shem. Shem is Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. He passes that on to Abraham, Abraham on to Isaac and down through the sons. Now here in Exodus chapter 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses has his 12 firstborn priests set up on 12 altars offering 12 Egyptian gods He captures their blood, which is bulls and goats, and he puts it in a a basin, and he pours it on the altar, which represents God. And then he pours it on the people. Can you imagine having all that goat blood all over you? And Moses says, Behold, the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar to you? You ever read Luke chapter 22? What does Jesus say with his chalice? Behold, the blood of the new covenant. And who is he saying that to? Oh, it just happens to be 12 men. Huh, what a dink. If those 12 men on 12 pillars were offering sacrifice and they were priests, what do you think these new 12 men are? They're priests. This is the high point of the Exodus account. Exodus 19 through 24. It's the moral law. There is no daily sacrifice. There's no clean foods versus unclean foods. There's no washing requirements. There's none of that. There is just the moral law, the Ten Commandments. It's being a good person and doing the right thing for everyone. He gives them the command to be a royal priesthood in Exodus 24. A royal priesthood. Why? Because you are the firstborn son. Your job, all of you, every single one of you, is to go out into the world and bring my other children home. As a royal priest. You are the priest. They are the lay folk. This is the height of that Exodus account. What happens next? Moses gets called up the mountain, fasts for 40 days. This is what we're doing now. Fasting for 40 days he gets the vision of the tabernacle. While that's going on, what are the people doing down at the base of the mountain? Exodus 32. Aaron's there with these 600,000, 1.5 million Israelites. You you pick the number. And all of a sudden, a faction arises, and they go to Aaron. Aaron's the prophet who stood before Pharaoh boldly and courageously. And they say, Aaron, as for this certain Moses, uh, Moses, who is Moses? Oh, yeah. I don't, we don't even know if he's coming back. Rise, get up, make us gods so we can worship. Moses, I mean Aaron rather, being the man of God that he was, the bold prophet that he was before Pharaoh, of course he stood up and he said, I will not. We will worship the one true God. We left Egypt. We cast off the Egyptian idols. We will not go back. No, he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He says, "Okay, that's a great idea. I like that idea. It's a good idea." Yeah, 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 yeah. This is cowardice. This is cowardice. We saw the same thing under Adam in the Garden of Eden when he was uh, faced with Nahash, the great serpent, which is described as the dragon in Revelation 12, not as a garden snake or Leviathan in the book of Isaiah. And he had a choice, save my skin? or save my soul. I choose my skin, let the soul go. Jesus says, fear not the, bo- the one who can kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill both the body and the soul and throw them into the fires of Gehenna. <clears throat> so Aaron is like another Adam, a coward, faced with a mob. It would have been better for Aaron to stand up for the one true God and been killed by this mob than it would have been for him to do what he did. Because what does he do? He takes their gold and he fashions the golden calf. Now ask yourself, why the golden calf? Do you know how many gods there were in Egypt? Tons. They worshipped gnats, frogs, the river, uh, 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 crops. You name it, they worshipped it. So why the golden calf? This is the Egyptian god Apis. Apis is a very interesting Egyptian god because he's young, virile, good looking. He is the god of wealth and power. He is the god of sex and fertility. So what does Aaron do here? He fashions the golden calf and he sets it up and he says, behold, the god who led you out of the land of Egypt. Whoa, 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 time out. This is not the god who led us out of Egypt was a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke last time I checked not some golden calf what is Aaron doing he's stacking his deck in his favor he's playing at both sides he's keeping all of his options open you don't know what this is like right you've never compromised your moral beliefs on anything because you've been surrounded by a bunch of people who don't believe like you do no you've always kept the line right you've always stood up and done the right thing no matter what no matter the consequence right I can tell you I'm more like Aaron than I am like Christ. He kowtows true worship to Yahweh to compromise a society that has become corrupted. He has corrupted the liturgy. And so he's playing it both ways. He says, tomorrow we'll hold a feast to Yahweh. And so what do they do the next day? They hold a big fancy feast. They eat all this food, which harkens back to Exodus 24, when God fed Moses after swearing the covenant but what do they do next it says they rose up to play this is a euphemism for an orgy they had an orgy sexual lust this is money, sex and power sex, drugs and rock and roll right here in the Exodus account, this is now the fall, just as Adam had a fall, so the new Adam Israel has its fall And the ancient rabbi said this was just as bad as Adam's fall. Sexual temptation plagued them, and they fell prey to it. So Moses comes down the mountain, smashes the Ten Commandments, and he takes the golden calf and he he, he makes it into a dust. He boils it down and creates dust out of it, throws it into the water, forces the Israelites to drink it. Why? Because that was the prescription in the book of Leviticus for an adulterous wife. When she was brought to the, temple, to the tabernacle, she was forced to drink water filled with dust. How is that significant? To remind us all that we are the spouse of God and we have, we have been adulterous. We have turned our backs on him. The book of the prophet Hosea makes this even more clear. God forces Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why? So you will know what it's like to be me, married to a spouse that cheats on you that abuses you, that turns your back on you and stabs you every chance she gets. But guess what? I will die for her because I will remain true even if she never does. Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, to go out into the world, and they forfeited their role as firstborn of all the families of God. They forfeited it. Instead, the Levites now uh, hold this office. They weren't supposed to hold this office, but they were the only men of God who stood up and said, I will stand with Yahweh. And they drew their swords, and they slaughtered 3,000 of their own people to cut off the evil corruption because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You want to save the specimen sometimes? It's necessary to cut off a hand or pluck out an eye. Jesus may have spoke on that issue in the Gospels. What kind of men do you want to be? Who are you? Who are you? Brothers in Christ, you live in a society that can't stand you because you're sitting in this room, because you say, I'm Catholic. How many generations have we been contracepting? The the price of sin is the sin itself. The chickens have come home to roost, brothers in Christ, and it's now in your day, on your watch. You will pay a bigger price than the generation before you. So to you is given greater graces, I would argue, to fight the fight. And you can't fight that fight if you're not in a brotherhood. You can't stand on the battlefield if someone's not standing next to you. You think you're in college, but you're on the battlefield. You think you have a a future life that's just gonna be happy-go-lucky, and it could be, and praise God if it is. But you must discern your first vocation and your first occupation to be a mighty man of God. The Israelites forfeited their role as firstborn priest all the way through Leviticus, the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is the lowest of all those. No longer was God giving the the law. By that point, it's Moses. By that point, divorce is permitted. By that point, harem warfare is permitted. By that point, it's we're gonna go into the land, but now we're gonna slaughter everybody we see. That was never God's intent, never God's will. God wanted you to go in the land to convert them, not be converted by them. Moses said, it's better that you slaughter them than it is for you to go there and be converted by them because you are stiff-necked people and you have not gotten your heart right because they kept falling and falling and falling. But we have a glimmer of hope. David comes. He becomes the king of Jerusalem. The same city Melchizedek was king over, king of righteousness, king of peace. And he, a Jew, is acting like a priest in 2 Samuel 7, or 2 Samuel 6, wearing the linen ephod, offering sacrifices, blessing the people, feeding them this bread and wine, just like Melchizedek, Melchizedek did. He is now the firstborn son. And everybody else must participate through his ministry. This is the height of the Davidic covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, God swears a covenant oath with him saying, your son, David, will be my son. Your son will be a son of God and I will give him the kingdom forever. Solomon played that role. A son of David sat on the throne in Jerusalem for longer, 400 some years, for longer, than any other dynasty at any other time in history on the planet. The Davidic dynasty is the longest running dynasty. You can name them, Chinese dynasties, Egyptian dynasties, Russian, it doesn't matter. The Davidic dynasty was the longest in human history. And then when they went into exile in 586 BC, you'd think everything was lost. For 600 years, there was no son of David sitting on the throne, and then all of a sudden, an angel comes to a young woman in the town of Nazareth, up in Galilee, and says, Kekare This is a very unique Greek word. He was referring to her with a title. She is the full of grace. She will always be full of grace. She is now full of grace, and she will always be full of grace. She always was full of grace. Your son, Mary, will be both the son of God and the son of David. He will inherit the kingdom of, of his father David, and he will rule it forever. You serve a king, but you have no idea what that means because you're like me, 21st century Western Americans. What do we know of kings? We have elected officials, some of whom we don't even like, but we have to live with them. We don't know what it's like to serve a king, but Jesus is a king. He's not like a king like you see in the movies, a king like you read on a Hallmark card. He is a king who has a court, who sits on a throne, who has ministers. He has a queen who happens to be his mother. The same thing for David. In the kingdom of David, Solomon had a queen mother. Solomon had 12 princes who fed his house with bread. He had one of those princes was a al Haba'it. The the over-the-house, or Segen ha the one who bore the keys, who is a father to the inhabitants of his house, Isaiah chapter 22. Jesus has all of these things, because he's taken the Davidic kingdom and he's perfected it. You serve a king. You are the mighty men of the king. That is who you are. Now, you might not like it, you might not feel comfortable with it, but it is time to become men. It is time to accept the vocation that we've been given and stand up and be a light in a dark world because you live in a day and age where they don't like you. They don't like what you believe. It's interesting that the biggest issue of our day today has now come to contraception. Abortion, we're winning the argument. The majority of Americans are are becoming more pro-life and against abortion, at least government-funded abortion. Contraception, that's a different argument. 98%, some say, are in favor of it. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says it's inherently evil. Oh, but I don't agree with that. It's the king. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What kind of life are you going to live? Are you going to live the kind of life where you long for the kind of life you wish you would have lived? Or will you live the life that you will glorify God? You have but one life to live, just one. How will you spend it? In that movie last night, this was a big part of it. The warrior ethos. The vast majority of the world's people today will live an empty life, a life of complete selfishness. A warrior lays his life down gives it all over and it is complete joy I'm not suggesting you join the military I'm not you already are in the military you're in the church militant you are in the kingdom of God you serve a king you must serve him in your role as student someday maybe you'll be a businessman or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever whatever God calls you to but do the thing God calls you to because anything else will only find you misery. Align your will to God's and you will find happiness. But you are men, mighty men of God, and you are brothers. Never leave your brother on the battlefield. How many times have you seen a brother in Christ addicted to pornography, or masturbation, or contraception, premarital sex, abortion, I've done them all. I've done them all. Thursday night, I'll tell you more about it. If only someone would have said, you're dying on the vine, brother. We need to save you. I can't let you hang here. Because the devil wants nothing more from you than to lie down on the the battlefield and do nothing. Taking you out of the fight is what he wants. It's easier to kill your friends So if you've committed a sin, what do you do? If you've been guilty of all of these perversities, what do you do? You go to the life God has given you in the sacrament of penance. You make frequent use of the sacraments. You go to confession and you pour out yourself to God and He gives you His love and mercy. The confessional is not a judgment. It is God's mercy. Luke chapter 15. It is God's mercy for you. You want life? You want to be fueled for the battle? The Holy Eucharist. You receive the sacraments as often as you possibly can. How many of you make use of this Mass at least once during the week? Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. You want to be a changed man? You want to become the man that will one day give honor and glory and dignity to your future spouse if you're called to marriage? Then you become a daily communicant. You want to be a light in the dark world? Then you get Illuminated with the light of Christ To the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist Moses when he spoke to God face to face His light shined forth He glowed It scared the Israelites half to death They made him wear a veil Why? Because they were living in sin And he wasn't When they committed the adultery At uh, Exodus 32 Moses said Blot my name out of the book of life And save them God was using Moses. He was testing Moses. He was giving Moses an opportunity to find out who he really was. A future, a prototype for Christ. What do you think you are? You're supposed to be a Christ in your life. You're supposed to be mighty men of God. Amen? Amen. Oh, That's so unconvincing. Amen? Amen? If you don't believe it and forget it, it won't happen. You have but one life to live. You have but one life to live. What kind of life will you live? Will you live a life that gives glory to God and you are proud on your deathbed? I gave it all. I left it all on the battlefield. I held nothing back. Because love is complete self-gift. Or will you live the life that you just regret? God, I wish I'd have done that different. Please, Lord, give me one more shot to do it better. Who will you be? This is your opportunity. Now is the time. There is no plan B for your school. It's not as if if you don't do your job, God will just send someone else. You're it. You are the king's men. You are the mighty men of God. Amen? 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 Amen. Amen. Go and serve Him. Thank you.